On the evening of August 19, 1949, the Jitney Carnival at the Church of Saints Peter and Paul in Norwood, Ohio was in full swing. Live bands were playing, families were gathered, and the neighborhood was having a ball, and Pastor Miller's military surplus searchlight was attracting the neighborhood to the event as planned. Unexpectedly, the searchlight fell upon a large sphere floating in the skies above Norwood. Witnesses fell silent, trying to comprehend what they were seeing. The incident kicked off UFO sightings in Norwood for the following six months. So tonight, we look deeper into the Norwood UFO searchlight incident of 1949. and welcome to another wonderful episode of the Hometown Haunts podcast brought to you by the Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities Comics Anthology. I am your host, Kat Cloco, along with me for this spectacular ride through Norwood's strange history are Jen Kohler and Christina Wald. They'll be on in a minute. Um, you can follow us at Sydney Cabinet Curio on Twitter and at Sydney Cabinet of Curiosities on Instagram. And of course, we're dying to hear about your personal encounters with the paranormal and fringe history from your neck of the woods, such as Norwood, Ohio. Send it to hometownhauntedmail at gmail.com or join us and share it on, face, on our Facebook group. You can find us at Hometown Haunts. We're also an official podcast that can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to see us while we're doing the show, you can watch the video feed on YouTube. Find us by searching Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities. Please rate and review us so that other spooky history lovers just like yourself can find us of course the link is in the show notes also for show news my voice is wonky because the leaves are dropping and allergens are in the air christina you have a kickstarter tell us about that yes i have a kickstarter for my book sketching here and everywhere my sketching obsession and it is almost funded it might even be funded when this airs and we had mentioned last week there's actually even a roswell story because when i was sketching in albuquerque we actually had someone come up and talk about seeing the people in roswell it's been exciting because a lot of my students have been getting the book so that's uh, been fun so it runs for another till the 22nd so it's been going really well and it's uh, mysketchingobsession.com. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, just before Thanksgiving it ends. So Yes. Yeah. And then I know you, Christina, Jen, and then your friend, Christine, went to Arnold's Bar for Halloween and you have stories. Oh, yeah. And I was not there and I want to hear these stories. They are not coming today. Cat. So for our <laughs> listeners, don't get excited. We're talking about UFOs today, not the dead at a bar. But... We will be talking about them in a later episode when we're, it's like our hometown haunt bonanza. I will give you a little tidbit. Yeah. Christine had a little girl hold her hand. Oh. Yeah. And yeah, was that following was, that her was cool. around the bar. No, that's sweet and sad yeah. at the same time. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, she was having some pretty authentic experiences. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Ooh. it'll be interesting to do an episode about them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I haven't asked her if she wanted to be on. <laughs> She's been on the show before. We can yeah, I know. I'm just like, you're going to do this, fun. whether you want to or not. <laughs> and it was it was interesting because the building's so old. 
Yeah. It was kind of interesting walking around it. Um, you know, everything about it's wonky. Like the stairs yeah. are all different sizes and it's just, yeah. it's supposed oh, to be the oldest fun. bar in Cincinnati. The upper floors. I didn't realize. I'd never been open. there before. Yeah. 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 I didn't realize they had dining space up there. Yeah. Me neither. And they me have neither. a room with a bathtub up there. That's supposedly Super pretty haunted. haunted. Yeah. yeah. And then the, the bar, there was, there was seemed to be a fair amount of activity um, and of course, as we were discussing, I was using one of those mobile apps and it seemed like it was mostly sus. It was entertaining and yeah. it kept telling us to get out. Yeah. It was season three, episode 60. Oh, okay. So that was when we talked about Arnold's bar. This is also the second time that we have talked about UFOs in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. So, and I discovered this story from doing that previous episode. So shall I dig into it? Yeah, I'm excited to hear the deep dive about it yes. because, um, you know, we kind of what you kind of did the very light. Yeah, I mentioned it, it before. Like if you sneezed, you missed the mention basically in the last <laughs> episode. But yeah, this is it went further and deeper than I was expecting it to go. Interesting. And so you were surprised by some of the stuff you found. I was. This is why I love doing this because you just and I'm one of these strange i want to say genealogists but this is why i went into anthropology is because once i get a little story and you start digging you still you get to see how weird people are mm -hmm. and you just keep following that little weird tree and it just grows and grows and grows i there are still more i want to look into into this like where people went after this incident happened and where did the searchlight go and all that stuff the follow-ups basically yes. did not have enough time for all of that but Tonight we're just talking about the actual incidents that happened and uh, just kind of a little bit of how Cincinnati dealt with it. But anyway, we got, we had, oh, I don't have my notebook. Anyway, I'll try to do some of this by memory. Oh, no. <laughs> but I was going to say for our younger listeners, this episode should be just fine for you to listen to. It's just UFO history of the 1950s, some Cincinnati history. and. Uh, Everyone walks away fine. This is a happy ending episode. So no one's been abducted that we know of or remembers. So on to the topic, which is the Norwood UFO searchlight incident. And as we just talked, none of us had ever heard about it before this year. This topic of tonight's episode was inspired by Greg Hand and his Cincinnati Curiosities blog, his Tumblr posts. Uh, you will see him on Reddit occasionally as well and other um, media around Cincinnati. Um, he's a great historian and he's the one who actually let me know about this entire thing in the first place. So thank you, Greg. This was awesome. You did wonderful writing and um, I enjoy reading your blog a lot. Other sources for tonight's show are the Cincinnati Inquirer, the Cincinnati Post, and the Cincinnati Times Star UFO Casebook and the National Archives because we talk about dip our toes into Project Blue Book a little bit. So, contrary to the common name given to this incident, the Norwood Searchlights incident refers to 10 UFO sightings in Norwood that occurred between August 19, 1949 to March 10, 1950. What makes these reports extraordinary is the caliber of the people who were reporting them, local clergy, uh, police officers, the press, civilians, and military officials, and scientists from the University of Cincinnati. 
So we're going to go into our Wayback Machine to August 19th, 1949. It was a wonderful Friday evening, and there was the Jitney Carnival in Norwood, Ohio. So after World War II, surplus of military equipment was cheap and plentiful. Reverend Gregory Miller of the Church of Saints Peter and Paul, now called Holy Trinity Church, but they use the same church and it's the same facility, bought a large 8 million candle power spotlight or searchlight to use for promoting the Catholic festivals. And the Church of Saints Peter and Paul would rent out this particular searchlight to other Catholic festivals around the region. So this is how we get more than just Norwood involved in this, but they all involve our beloved Sergeant Donald R. Berger and Reverend Gregory Miller. So on the night of Friday, August 19th, uh, 1949, University of Cincinnati ROTC instructor, Sergeant Donald R. Berger, was working the searchlight that evening for the Jitney Carnival being held at the church and at the school that was next door. Uh, a little after 8 p.m., he was guiding the light in the sky and it illuminated a large circular object hovering in the sky over the festival. Sergeant Berger kept the searchlight on the object with many carnival goers seeing the hovering object overhead. The object stayed in the sky until 11 p.m. And we know these timed incidents because Sergeant Berger wrote them all down in his notes. So we know the exact times when this I'm going to call it a UFO for a lack of a red term because it's an unidentified flying or hovering object. Oof, UFO doesn't sound right. So because it just constantly hovered and kind of turned on and off like a light. So we're going to call it a UFO. It really was identified flying. And uh, it kind of sounds better than balls of fire, which is what the Cincinnati media kind of went with as a title which really they weren't on fire. <laughs> so they were just um, reflective. So we're going with UFO. So there were other aerial, as I just said, balls of fire that were reported by local media being the newspapers of the time that were all witnessed across the region that night. And Sergeant Berger also notes that there was one other spotlight that was military grade being used that evening at a different festival across town. He knew this was happening and could see it when he was guiding his own. So he knows there was at least two spotlights going on at the same time. Uh, a trained weather observer was quoted in August 20th, so the day after uh, edition of the Cincinnati Post, that the objects looked like weather ceiling balloons, but they weren't moving. However, atmosphere winds were between 25 to 35 miles per hour. So they had, so had they actually been weather balloons, they would have been moving. So that kind of immediately cancels out everyone's first suspicion is that they're large weather balloons. This is also what Roswell was claimed to have been as well. So we have the weather men going, nope, that's not what it was. They weren't any released and they would have been moving. The Cincinnati Inquirer, Cincinnati Post, and the Cincinnati Times Star all had articles the following day of varying lengths detailing the different versions of the, that night's events. For example, the Cincinnati Post, which is the copy that I have, it is a teensy tiny one paragraph statement, mostly by this weather observer uh, saying, well, 
they're not weather balloons because they would have been moving through the atmosphere. And that was their take on it. That's the one that I could find readily as uh, as a newspaper report. The second searchlight, as I noted, was also happening that night in the sky. Kind of got ahead of myself in my own notes. September 11th, 1949, the St. Gertrude Festival sightings. So a few weeks later, after the Jitney Carnival, Sergeant Berger, Berger was once again working the spotlight, this time for the St. Gertrude Church Festival in Madeira, Ohio, who had rented the searchlight for the festival. At 7.45 p.m., a circular object was caught hovering in the light of the searchlight. It disappeared but reappeared again at 9.15 p.m. and remained stationary, hovering over the festival until 11.45 p.m. Sergeant Berger estimated that the object was a sphere with a diameter of 100 to 150 feet. So a number of witnesses also saw this because he kept it in the spotlight the entire time. So if you can imagine going into the festival, getting some funnel cakes and looking up and seeing this gigantic moon-like thing reflecting off of a spotlight (laughs) over you, I think I would have dropped the funnel cake onto the ground out of just sheer surprise. So the following week, September 17th, 1949, are the Milford sightings. While Sergeant Berger was, Berger, I don't know why I keep calling him Berger. Sergeant Berger was working the searchlight. A solid circular object began to hover within its light. Sergeant Berger estimated that it was hovering about seven to eight miles above the festival. And during the festival, about 6,000 to 7,000 people were said to have witnessed the object. This is in total, though, not just the people who were at the festival, but also the surrounding area around Milford. There were reports. So this is like everyone together, how many people were estimated to have witnessed this. Because we get some more insight as to what the circular object looked like. People traveling from Mil- from around Milford could see the spotlight shining on this hovering object overhead. So people who were at a they were able to see this thing and it looked like a big peanut. <laughs> That's the punchline. People, they they were looking at it and it looked like two spheres, basically one on top of the other. So a peanut. It was a big metallic peanut and it was shiny and reflective. And people interviewed said it looked like aluminum or other metallic metallic materials is what it, the outside was made out of. It was also smooth by some reports and ribbed in others. So interesting. We get different takes, but this, it looked like a giant hovering peanut over Milford. <laughs> Silver peanut. So this comes the October 23rd, 1949 return to Norwood sightings. And this is interesting because we have This is where all the scientists saw it. This is where we have most of our photos from. Actually, all of our photos, uh, I think think spare one, are from this night because we had somebody recording everything. It's like, hey, we have these hot things called (laughs) a, a video recorder and we're going to make a motion picture of this and a camera. So... It was a hazy evening that night and Sergeant Berger once again was manning the searchlight. And I want to know what his thoughts were on this as he's going again, seriously. Okay. And they were back again at the church of St. Peter and Paul in Norwood. 
Unlike the other incidents, though, this was a purposeful attempt to capture the UFO on film and with scientific witnesses. So attending this event were several members of the press. I believe the chief editor for the Cincinnati Post was there. Uh, the mayor of Norwood, R. Ed Tepe, was there. Sergeant Leo Davidson of the Norwood Police was there. He was the one actually taking all the video and, or I should say the film and the photos that we eventually have of this. Uh, and there were two professors from the University of Cincinnati, Dr. G.A. Wells from the physics department and Dr. Paul Hergert from the UC Astronomy Labs, basically. And we know all about them because of the Cincinnati Observatory episode. So Sergeant Davidson took photos and motion picture recordings of the UFO. And this footage was used in 1952 for a TV show, but has become lost to time. It's lost media. Why is an interesting point for a little bit later this episode. The incident was reported to Wright Pat with an intelligence officer taking the report. And the sighting started at 7 p.m. at first. It was described to look slightly uh, conal and hovering above the layer of the haze that night. But at 10 p.m., it took a very curious turn when the gathered witnesses watched several smaller triangular-shaped objects emerge from the UFO. They exited the UFO on a strange beam that they later exited out of when they turned off of the beam to fly around the object. So basically what it sounded like was these little triangular objects were coming out of the UFO and it was like when you open the door at night and you have this beam of light coming out of your house it was the same kind of phenomena happening when they exited the UFO, the internal light of the UFO made a beam path for these triangular mini UFOs to travel on. And they stayed on this path until they flew around the UFO in a circular motion. Witnesses described that the smaller objects looked like the apex of an arrowhead. Dr. Wells was quoted in saying of his experience, in my opinion, it's an optical illusion. And meanwhile, Dr. Herbert said, it's not fake. I believe it may be caused by illumination of the gas of the atmosphere. So both of them were just, one was way more positive than the other, I would say, in this. So, like I said, all the photos, and I I can't, can I screen share these? I can't. I can put them in our messenger. Um, really, the photos, they're all in black and white. And to me, they look like somebody took photos of the moon. <laughs> yeah. So this is one of the photos taken October 23rd. Um, it really, it's the best one where you can actually see the little balls of light, which were these triangular arrowhead looking UFO mini saucers that people were reporting to see. And all in all that night, there were 50 people in attendance for this capture of the UFO. And the fact that it came on time and stayed around for a few hours is kind of am like amazing that a UFO seems to be summoned by this particular spotlight. It almost feels like a moth to the flame type of thing. Um, this is another photo of it. It's This one looks a little bit better because you can actually see the tail of the light and then the actual... Um, object being illuminated by the searchlight itself. 
these are the two of them together. I don't know how I just managed to do this, but this is just a close-up image of the uh, the searchlight hitting. And they're saying basically this is where most of the light is hitting and then dispersing along the um, sphere, basically. And then this is a photo that someone took further away where you can basically see the searchlight on the ground and this object up in the air. And what's really strange is the fact that it's doing this 25 degree kind of bump up here where some UFO UFOlogists believe that the sphere was actually taking the light from the searchlight, like using that physics and sucking up the energy from that light to be able to power itself somehow. And this is from 1952, I believe this article, 51 or 52. But this is uh, Sergeant uh, Donald Berger and the searchlight that he was using. And then to the right is the saucer base or an illusion, basically. And this is, I think, the Cincinnati Inquirer article. So... Yep. I'm going to stop sharing screen. There we go. And that is not the end of my presentation, but the end of my visuals. Anyway. Um, so November 19th, 1949, many, 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 many decades before books by the banks this year. Uh, Reverend Miller has the searchlight on again, this time unassisted by Sergeant Berger. And after 7 p.m., the same circular object could be seen. After several moments, it disappeared if it had been, as if it had been switched off. A minute later, it reappeared at a higher altitude. And that's the end of that experience. Then the next month, December 20th, 1949, again in Norwood, at 8 p.m., Reverend Miller turned on the searchlight and the craft appeared very high up in the atmosphere at first. After some time, it moved closer to the light. So it was just like, mm, got to get more of that. And uh, then he, let's see, closer to the light, it disappeared from view around 10 p.m. So it just kind of slowly got closer to the searchlight base throughout the evening. Uh, January 11th, 1949, uh, again in Norwood, Reverend Miller turned on the searchlight at 7.30 p.m. And at 7.45, the US UFO appeared but looked dimmer. Witnesses noted that several small objects moved throughout the light beam. So again, those small little mini UFOs. March 9th, 1950 in Norwood, uh, Reverend Miller turned on the searchlight again at 8 p.m. These UFO, the, the UFO remained motionless for 45 minutes, hovering in the light before two smaller objects came directly out of it. But then he didn't write when it disappeared. But the following day, March 10th, at 7 p.m., it appeared when the searchlight was turned on. It remained for 45 minutes up until 7.45 p.m. before disappearing for 30 minutes. At 8.15, it returned and remained until 11 p.m. when it disappeared and it was never seen again in Norwood. So that's the end of all these incidents. <laughs> Together, they are the Norwood UFO searchlight incident. Although these sightings are amazing, they were not included in Project Grunge, the Project Blue Book's predecessor, which is really interesting given the amount of people who saw it and the caliber of the witnesses. You would think this would be prime interviewing material, people that 
would want to be included in Project Blue Book or Project Grunge. However, a UFO sighting on March 8th that happened between the last two uh, incidents at the Dayton airport was included in Project Blue Book, even though it didn't have nearly as many witnesses. In that case, it was a self-illuminating orb that two pilots who were on descent to the Dayton airport witnessed in their flight path. And it seemed to keep up with their plane and then also be disappearing as going through clouds and then reappearing again. And then it finally disappeared after a few minutes. So it's very similar to what was being reported here in Norwood, but for whatever reason, it was included maybe because of the two pilots and not the rest of the cases from Norwood. Uh, Let's see. Leonard H. Stringfield, who wrote the book Saucer Post 3-0 Blue about his UFO encounters during World War II, looked through the Norwood UFO case files. He is also from Cincinnati. He even appeared on a WCPO special called Flying Saucers with Reverend Miller in 1952. There, Miller showed Stringfield the incredible footage recorded by the Norwood police and from the October 23rd incident where all these photos are from. And a lot of these photos are actually stills of the reels that we could get. They're very degraded by now. He actually, um, Reverend Miller, showed Stringfield the, the, I keep calling it video, but the footage on a reel-to-reel at WCPO after the filming of the TV show ended. And then the footage disappears. Stringfield considered the Norwood UFO incident one of the most credible he had worked on. And this is a man who also was in the Air Force during World War II, saying one of the best cases on civilian record in regards to testimonial evidence, including members of the Catholic clergy, the press, the military, and thousands of other witnesses. What was interesting is Harry Mayo, the Time Life Mag- of Time Life magazine, had approached Chief Davidson about or sorry, Officer Davidson, about the UFO case. Davidson sent over the 10 photos that he had and the footage because Mayo was saying, hey, I'm going to write an article about this case and other UFO cases. Mayo never completed the article for Time Life and the photos were never returned. So it's just, it sucks. <laughs> like, I'm sad that he never got his photos or the reel-to-reel footage again, because if anything, this is just history of the UFO hysteria that took over, that gripped the United States and other countries. And it's a nice little time capsule of all of this happening, uh, this cultural wave of UFO hysteria, basically, or interests in UFOs. So there's a lot of questions that I had while reading through all of this. One of them was, what happened to the searchlight? I'm really curious as to what happened to it. This was a massive piece of machinery. I don't know if it was ever sold or donated or scrapped. I don't know. And that's fallen into the void of history. We may never know. The other interesting thing looking through the photos and other UFOlogists have pointed this out is that the top of this sphere is never seen. It's always illuminated from the bottom. And um, we can tell that it was not self-illuminating and any light that we see is coming from the searchlight and being reflected off of this object because it is basically an illuminated object with a back 
black background, distance is impossible to actually tell without the eyewitnesses giving us their estimates. And if they're anything like me with estimation, they may be off a little bit because uh, I'm really bad with distance estimation. Uh, somebody, one, one of the other ufologists in an article wondered why Sergeant Berger was wearing his uniform while using the searchlight for these festivals. Was it an official army business? Did he happen to know to look for these UFOs because he had been clued on any potential like, hey, we're going to experiment with this thing. Point the searchlight up because I know you're working this job type of intel. Uh, was it an official military vehicle being tested? Because at the time that I could find, there weren't any aerial vehicles that could hover for any length of time without making a lot of noise. And if you notice with all these witnesses, they've never mentioned any noise being made by this object floating above them. Um, my response to was this official business? Why was he wearing his uniform? It was 1949. We had just finished our world war. Uh, patriotism was through the roof. Of course he was going to wear his uniform. This is like my grandfather would continually wear his hat in every veterans day, Memorial day, just 4th of July out of patriotism. So I think that's more why that uniform was being worn. Not that it was any particular official army business. Uh, the other interesting question is, was the UFO constantly still hovering over the festivals or did the searchlight keep up with it, keeping it illuminated? So basically, was it moving slightly and the people operating the searchlight just follow it? Um, it it's just a interesting question that's never all the descriptions are kind of vague on this. Berger kind of says at, for the first incident that he followed it with the searchlight. And that's the most detail we get as readers of these accounts. Um, so yeah, it's very vague on that particular movement from what follow-up reporting I could find. And this was very limited. Both Reverend Miller and Sergeant Berger went on to lead quiet lives after this incident. Eventually Berger and his wife would move to Arizona where they both passed away was in 1989 and 1994. Um, I don't know what happened to Reverend Miller. He could be still out there. I don't know. I did not find his obituary. Uh, what remains in question about, uh, <laughs> sorry, what remains is a question about what they were actually seeing those nights and why it continued to return of, to Norwood of all places in the United States. Um, what I had written down in my notes that I failed to bring up here is that just within these years, I think around 1951, no, 1952, because this is why the WCPO show came on. So in 1952, around July of that year, eight objects were witnessed floating over the United States. I believe this is one of the things that inspired Independence Day as a film. Um, and they were Jets were scrambled or planes were scrambled and two pilots actually encountered these glowing orbs and they flew West. Ironically, at the same time, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, and St. Louis all had these orbs reported flying over their skies. So in 52, 
WCPO does that Flying Saucers TV show, and it's probably in response to these mysterious lights that are being seen over Washington, D.C., Cincinnati, Indianapolis, and St. Louis. It's all interesting. Something was happening. There's way too many witnesses, both civilian and military, to be saying, like, it's just all weather balloons. Weather balloons don't travel that fast. Something was being studied. What, though, we don't know. So what are your thoughts on all this information that I have just deluged onto you? This is a much more interesting and beefy story than I ever imagined. I mean, yeah. five minutes is a long time. And yeah. stuff coming out of it, I wish I could have seen it. Yeah. yeah. I, all imagine I can imagine. a time of cell phones. <laughs> even, if it, if you, even if it happened today, I guarantee you the cell phone footage would be shaky and hazy. <laughs> like there'd be fingerprints on the camera lens making everything. Well, I was smutty. thinking like at, at, at the, the where they just had the festival with all the drones and stuff doing the light stuff. Like oh, those were there was yeah, yeah, blink. There was some really amazing there's some really amazing footage of that. Oh yes. yeah, and it looks UFO-y. It looks really UFO-y. Yeah. It kind of had yeah. a space invaders feel. Yeah, oh, it did. Like when we were watching it. People around us didn't even realize they were drones. Like they turned on and because of where we were standing in the crowd, they looked like lights from a parking garage. And hmm. even Mike didn't re recognize they were on because they were in a square formation. And until I pointed them out, I said, those are the drones. And he's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's so kind of like when people see apparitions, you don't always immediately recognize them as right. being someone who's not a part of your party. <laughs> they, If right. they're not too transparent, they look like average people. And we're not always focusing on things immediately in front of us. We're kind of always inwardly looking and not mm -hmm. looking too far ahead of ourselves. So, yeah, it'd be interesting if it happened today. And I will say the entire this past week. I've, when I've been doing these deep dives, I've looked out my window around 10 p.m. going, are you out there, Saphir? It's me, Kat. <laughs> and nothing shows up. So when I was um, in the newsroom at the Enquirer, I pulled our UFO file to scan <gasps> in the photos. Fun! And it, it, it had this, but it didn't have those photos that you showed. Yeah, so these photos, so I don't think um, it probably not because I think most of these photos are from the Cincinnati Post. Okay, because the Cincinnati Post editor, I think his last name was Lynn, mm -hmm. was good friends with um, Reverend Miller because ah, he was gotcha. he was present in that October 23rd event where all mm -hmm. these photos are from how these got pulled from the footage before it was lost media i do not know i just know they exist well i will tell you that things mysteriously disappeared out of the Enquirer archives all the time mm -hmm. i think people just walked away with them you know especially if they had any historical significance mm -hmm. or even emotional significance i know there was this one photo was my all-time favorite photo of the Enquirer. And I'm pretty sure it was taken because it was no longer in the file by the time I had left the newsroom. So huh. um, I don't want to say too much more because I don't mm -hmm. want 
publicly point a finger at someone but yeah uh yeah things just or people take things home and they just never get returned or they were on the desk some in a pile of stuff because let me tell you journalists are messy people yes we are and uh could could be sitting on someone's desk and got thrown away by accident who knows yeah and but the uh... times might still have an archive because yeah. the inquiry would keep anything that was sent to us and mm. it would end up in our library okay so i don't know if we could go what the times archives are like mm -hmm. maybe they might have it have it still i hope so yeah. i hope yeah. so because this is so interesting i mean could it have been we're so close to right pat could it have been tests of stuff because i have the story we talked about during the ufo episode we had people that saw all sorts of interesting flying vehicles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This seems like it could have been something that was top secret that they couldn't talk about. Oh yeah. This is, that's what it really reminds me of too. Yeah. Cause like with the triangles and stuff, it seems like it was some sort of, I mean, if you've ever read the Pentagon's brain mm -hmm. um, about DARPA and all the weird stuff, the Pentagon did tests on, mm -hmm. they probably just told people, Oh, it's nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's a really fascinating book. It's by Annie Jacobson, and it talks about all the money the Pentagon, like anything you could think of. They there's a reason why that budget's so huge. Mm -hmm. Anything yeah. you could think of, they did. And this seems like something because, like the 45 minute thing, it just hovering in the air seems really. I mean, that's, that's a pretty long wild. time. That's a long time. That's not like a casual encounter. That's no. like no, that that's just like you go out to eat. You're sitting on the patio. You look up. The entire wow, time there's this there. gigantic moon thing watching you. So, that's that's no moon. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. Um, <laughs> Unsolved Mysteries came back on Netflix with new episodes. Mm -hmm. And the first episode was about a UFO sighting. I can't remember where. But it was prolonged like this. And mm. uh, lots of people saw it. Police officers saw it. Um, they ended up calling the um meteorological people that yeah, monitored no the radar yeah and it showed up on the radar and they Is were this the one that was in southern michigan yes yeah yes and it, it was I lived in that area at that time oh my god okay really yeah. did you know about it then <laughs> nope okay <laughs> i was blissfully unaware of all of that but they had the guy the meteor meteorologist guy on there talking about it and it's fascinating mm -hmm. and none yeah, of them really could explain it none i will them. say in for meteorologists large groups of <laughs> birds flying also show up on radar and the cicadas remember when we were reporting on cicadas yes. they yes. were also showing up in alexandria okay. virginia's and Washington DC's meteorological radar system. Okay. So fascinating. That kind of gives you an idea of how sensitive these those radars are. are. But those Watch are radars from last year, not necessarily 1994. Right. <laughs> so, and not 1949. So. Well, he um, was seeing it as other people were seeing it. Mm -hmm. Like, so it was, it was matching up with what was coming in on the reports. And as far as weather-wise, there was nothing, but it's kind of impossible to tell if it's a bird, a yeah. flock of birds. It's a I big mean, blob. Yeah. So, listeners, if you were there, yeah, let us know. Yeah, if you have any insight. Church festival, you, you know. 
Yeah. Norwood or Michigan. Yeah. 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 That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, Especially if you have any photos. Yeah. It's, I, I'm always interested about people who live near army bases or air force bases, like right Pat. Like I grew up about an hour North of Grissom air okay. force base in Indiana. So I have friends who have UFO sightings from around Grissom around while they were going to Purdue. Mm-hmm. So university. So, cause you have to drive right through Rochester, Indiana on route 25. And that's where a lot of people are seeing UFOs. Which, mm-hmm. if you look to your east on Route 25, you're looking at Grissom Air Force Base, mm-hmm. and um, they they were seeing things. So, and in that case, that was the cigar-shaped UFOs, and then mm-hmm. it was dropping basically smaller UFOs from it. So and, that sounds very similar to what you described with the little mm-hmm. triangles. Yeah, it it is very similar. So, um, yeah, it, it's just kind of. It's fascinating. I take the same stance with UFOs as I do with ghosts. They exist because people have witnessed these things and these are the names we've attached to them. Mm-hmm. What they are, I can't tell you, but they exist. So, yeah, um, yeah that, it's it's an interesting story and it just kept unfolding. I did not realize people had seen it so many times. What I do, a little flag that raises is the fact that Reverend Miller and Sergeant Berger we're at the center of every single one yeah. of these things. So I'm just sitting there going, okay, boys, what are you doing that's summoning the Saphir? Yeah. And I wonder if they had anything like after that and just never reported it. Yeah. And that's, and that's really what I was curious. And that's why I did some follow-up to see what happened with them. Mm-hmm. And from all accounts, it was a pretty quiet life. There weren't any major newspaper articles um, like Berger got married. I know what houses he lived in when he was here in Cincinnati, which is super creepy, but. Well, you know, they like, used to print your address in the paper. Yeah, so. they used to. And yeah. that's how when I'm doing these large, like when looking for his name, it would just be like, this is, this is their marriage announcement. This is where they lived. Like even in their marriage announcement, it told me where they lived at that time. And um, the yellow pages, some of them show up in these large um, archive searches. So, yeah, I know where they lived around the city. And then they eventually moved to Arizona. But I don't know what he did for work. I don't know if he taught anywhere. I don't know what she did. Um, I don't know what if they had any kids. I know where they died. I know where they're buried. I've seen their headstone. But all that information in between that makes a life, I'm not, I don't really know. Yeah. Not that I need to know, but as a historian and a researcher, you're just kind of like, ah, the story's incomplete. (laughs) I know. It's always the the information you want to know the most you'll, you can never have because you either you're not that person or you're just not a part of their life or. Yeah. Yeah. I I hope somebody says something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Somebody says. Yeah. I will say my brother-in-law is a pilot. And mm-hmm. I have asked him a couple times, have you seen anything up there? He's like, no, there's nothing up there. Mm. Well, that's, that's just his experience. I mean, he's not, he flies commercial airlines and, or used to, he flies private jets now, but yeah. uh, he also isn't attuned to those things. He's a very logical person. Yeah. But um, you want those flying your planes. Yes. Logical people. 
Yes, logical, grounded a, people. He's a very good pilot. Just got promoted to captain, so I'm very proud of him. Well, congratulations! But uh, yeah, he said he he's never seen anything. That's really interesting. I yeah. I just I want to I want to find out more about it too because it just it's it's meteor. It's you know like some of the cryptid stories we have. It's one little mm -hmm. tiny paragraph in a paper mm -hmm. in 1852 or something, and this yeah. is huge this is huge this is so many people witnessing it oh yeah so i i'm kind of appealing to our listeners if you have a family member who shared a story about seeing these i would love to get it down on recorded somehow writing audio whichever just because even if we aren't a part of project blue book this is still an important cultural touchstone for everyone in the 1950s during the cold war it, and it's, it's not just... it's not in our collective unconscious in cincinnati i mean mm -hmm. stories like this get lost to time so it's yeah. nice that you're archiving i mean good job at researching because this is really interesting yeah and it's just a fascinating and look into definitely uh, everyone asks how urban legends are made ufo resurgence in the 50s the 40s and the 50s is a great example of how these become prominent in culture because ufos did not exist in story until roswell in 47 well technically the other incident earlier in 47 but we watched basically myth be made in media and it's a wonderful case study so that's why i love to have these stories is to be able to say these are stories people recount and to them these are true Wow. These happen to them. These are personal experiences. So you know, I have always wished, and I noticed this working in the media, in a newspaper environment for the last 15 years, that, you know, they never really look past tomorrow, mm -hmm. which is kind of annoying. In like big cases, like murder cases or a political thing, they will do follow up on it. But look, little things like that. They don't always follow up on even and it's kind of annoying because I wish like they had that foresight to go back two years later and look at it again, mm -hmm. you know, but it, the world, especially now is just not made that way. Yeah. You know, it's one and done and it's forgotten unless somebody else takes a look at it. Yeah. And then and patterns are found in details like this. Yeah. That's definitely something that was ground into me in my anthropology classes is to pay attention to these smaller details because if they are reoccurring and popping up frequently, it's a pattern you should actually be paying attention to, even if it's small, like yeah. one small mundane thing, but it could snowball into something larger. Yeah. And um, yeah, it. I know there were so many other UFO accounts that have been made more popular like the ones that we talked about with uh, Washington, D.C. Same exact phenomena, though. Mm -hmm. So what was Ooh. happening? I just remembered a friend of mine from college had a UFO experience as a teenager in uh, Maryland. Oh, wow. Out in the country. So her and her friend, best friend would sleep outside all the time. Mm -hmm. And she saw something wow. hover or go across the sky or something late at night. And it scared the ever <laughs> yeah that would and she, I didn't ask her too many details because it still bothered her you know mm -hmm. yeah. in college so yeah. I'm like <gasps> you don't think I ever want to see that yeah just, just as yeah. a little aside so 
I drove to Maryland last week oh, and yeah. <laughs> there and back again. And uh, the entire time we were driving up and down the um, Allegheny Mountains, just because those are right in right what you hit at Pennsylvania, West Virginia and Maryland. And the entire episode of our haulers and the creatures and cryptids of those haulers flashed through my head for the three hours we were going up and down the haulers and valleys of um, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and uh, Maryland. And I turned to Mike and I'm like, do you think we'll see Bigfoot? And he's like, no, we're going to see that weird um, human-headed ox thing that your I love guest that. was that talking was cool. about that I just <laughs> forgot what its name was. But um yeah, it, it's he's like we're gonna see that, and I'm like yes, that would be great. But no, no, that's yeah, not what I, we saw. I love those car drives. Like mm-hmm. you see a wooded path, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like, God, I really want to turn down there. Yeah, we did <laughs> get good pumpkin bread. Huh? Ooh. We did get good pumpkin bread. We stopped off at some little bakery in Maryland, and it was yeah. really oh, that good. sounds cool. Yeah. yeah. So we've got two things. We've got a hometown haunt um, from Misha when he was close to Berea, Kentucky. Okay. And then we also got an email. I don't know if you saw it, Kat. Somebody heard something on the EVP. Uh, somebody that we urban sketch with. Oh, okay. Show, and she uh, said she heard something. It's at the. I pasted it at the bottom of the document so you can read. Let's see. Should I pull up that? It's in our actual episode, Correct. Yes, uh, she says this one. She didn't say which one it was. She says you hear. She says this is around one hundred one thirty-seven. So that must be at the episode one hundred one thirty-seven is when she heard. I know. Is that cool that somebody was listening for yeah. it? Yeah. And then she and then it's pasted way down. She did this in the email, so I just loved it that way because she wants you to listen to it first and see if you hear it, and then she put at the bottom what she thought it was. Okay, so oh. I'm gonna okay. say. Everyone be quiet so I can listen to it for a second. And I'm okay. also going to have to boost up my... I think I know what it is. It, what it, is It's my... Um, sorry, I'm lowering the volume so I don't blow my eardrums out. So that is my footrest right there. That mm-hmm. You can hear that. So the drafting table I am presenting on is from 1902. And... <laughs> Um, it has a massive wooden footrest down here that is basically held on by two tiny, very tired bolts. And if I move my feet the wrong way, it kind of sounds like stuff moving around in the back. It's, it's my feet. Do you think that that's what it was? I I don't remember because the, some of the sound clips I actually just replaced your sound clip with. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't any other sound but the sound clip, but I don't know until I listen to it which it is. So it's actually me when we're doing talking about the Anchorage after the fact, and I'm talking about a, a spirit oppression. And if you're feeling kind of panicky, oh, how, so that's what she heard. She thought, she yeah, heard she heard there. me like right now. <sighs> it wasn't a sound clip, and it's me playing with my feet. I try not to do it because I'm like. I know people may go, oh my gosh, there's something in the background. Like that? <laughs> yeah. Um, like that's why I, well, I warned you, I don't think we were, uh, our mics were hot yet, but often the dogs will butt their heads into the door and you'll hear this very si- s- soft boom, 
sound and that's the dogs or their other favorite thing to do is take their bones and prop them up on the bottom of the door and then chew on them nice so then that leverage yeah well yeah you need and your jaws get tired and so do your paws so you need to hold it up but i think that's what that is i will listen to it again when we're off air but i'm pretty sure that is me shifting my weight so thank you though that is really good ears yes very good ears keep it going because it is not uncommon for ghosts to speak during recordings and with my old show we got several evps one that interrupted us in the middle of an episode wow Um, and we all caught it live because we're like there was four of us and suddenly there was a fifth person talking (laughs) Whoa, like, oh, that's cool. That? I hope that happens to us one day. No. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> All right. Sh- should I read the hometown haunt? Yes, please. Okay. Uh, this is from friend of the show, Misha. And he says, I stayed at a cabin southeast of Berea, Kentucky, about 45 minutes. The Airbnb was a historic home. I believe it was near Arthur Lake. Our first night there, we both heard cracking in the ceiling floorboards above like footstrips to very, very times of the day, but thought nothing of it because it's an old log house. That night, I was awakened by a noticeable tap in the middle of my shoulder blades while sleeping face down. I got up right away thinking it had been a field mouse or something like that, but I didn't hear scurrying of an animal as you normally would and went back to sleep. The second night, I was awakened by four loud sounds coming from the stone fireplace. They sounded like iron metal hitting stone. Tap one, I woke, heard loud sound two to three times more. I sprung out of the bed. Loud sound four, I leaped towards the sound just outside the door. Nothing. And I should mention, he was with his girlfriend and she didn't hear anything or see anything. We checked out. Uh, we texted the same accounts to the Airbnb host. He wasn't surprised. He said guests tell him all the time of the phenomenon in that house. He said the original owner took his own life on the front porch. I assumed by gunshot. Other guests complain about the sensation of sitting on the edge of the bed. One accounted of seeing a shadowy figure sitting on the chair at the edge of the bedroom. Every account of guests talked about creaking of boards as someone was walking across it at all times of day. Hmm. Wow. Well, thank you, Misha. Yeah. That is that's that a is good just, experience. Just, yeah, when he got back, he was like, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. I will say, you've hung out with me for really long if you said, that's a great experience. <laughs> I don't know well, if that's everyone's vivid, natural vivid reaction yeah, to the yeah. story, but yeah, no, well, that's a fascinating that I want to go to that cabin. <laughs> Well, yeah, like it's a very unexplainable experience, right? And his, well, and he and his girlfriend that, didn't hear anything. Yeah, he was. He, he mentioned also that it was in the middle of nowhere, and there was no cell phone reception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, let's go there. That give me some ideas where I could go. Story. That reminds me of the Conjuring House in Rhode Island. No, <laughs> that is a hard no for me. Ooh. I will never. Go to that house. Go to the Conjuring House with me in Rhode Island. No. Oh, I love Rhode Island. It was a wonderful state when I lived there. It is a a beautiful state. state. Did you say, have you been to the house? I've not been to the house. It was not available for uh, renting for the night um, when I lived there. It was a private residence. Mm -hmm. But I, I know where it is in Rhode Island. 
Um, I would, and it is now available for Airbnb. And I, I would like some friends to come. Let's do me. it. Road trip. No, I would love to just walk the ground. No. See no. who I run into. No, that movie <laughs> scared the ever living shit out of me. <laughs> I've actually ghost hunted it. with Andrea Perrin. So she's very nice. I would love to meet her again. We talked about ghosts for a really long time. That sounds awesome. Yeah, she's wonderful. Yeah, it's kind of a long drive. We'd probably have to fly there, actually. I don't uh, know. Yeah, I guess it's 16 hours from here. It's a mm -hmm. wonderful 16 hours through Bigfoot infested Pennsylvania. Well, we might see everything then. <laughs> yeah. Bigfoot, ghosts. I mean, what else would you want? Snarlygaster. I would, would need major convincing to go and stay at that house. So Rhode what Island's is your very what is your recommendation for somebody that finds themselves in an Airbnb and this happens to them? How do they keep from freaking out? Like, what are cat suggestions? If because this is actually a really good thing. Like, if you're getting scared by something like that, how how should you react? What will make you feel more safe? Okay, so the first thing you want to do is just exit the room. I won't say just flat out leave. Don't get in your car and leave and give up. Don't don't do that. But if you walk in or you wake up and there is a presence sitting on your bed who should not be there and is very much like a shadow person, you can close your eyes and relax. Think about good things. I feel like Mary Poppins suggesting this, but um, just... Think about positive memories, positive associations with things that will help calm you down. If it's a wonderful beach that you've been to, the fact that you love Rhode Island clam cakes, think about that. The supernatural um, boys. Yeah, the supernatural boys, exactly. Um, but think about just things that make you happy and try to lower that adrenaline because that's really what's being your enemy here. Um, it's just, it's the lizard brain fight or flight. I'm not asking you to fight anything. I'm not asking you to flight anything. I'm asking you to calm down and take a few breaths, especially if you're having, um, oh, the old hag syndrome too. Just calm down, take a few breaths. I know it's hard. What you're seeing is frightening you. It's not going to do anything. They can't do anything it's there it's just a shocking thing and then take a moment step back and go okay i'm safe i i know i'm in a cabin but people know i'm here and this is a safe place to be usually these encounters only last a few seconds and just kind of marvel at what you're seeing it's a it's a miracle of physics that you're seeing something pop up in the middle of a cabin when you're not expecting it to um, even the sounds that you're hearing from unknown sources, you can sit there and go, okay, I don't think it's a squirrel or a raccoon. Is it a small child that was stuffed up the chimney back in 1849, making these sounds to let me know that they're there. Well, maybe they could be, but marvel at the physics of the fact that a spirit is able to wrap on stonework to get your attention. So start focusing on the details and how they're being made. This is how I calm myself down and kind of in a weird way, rational yourself out of it. I speak from personal experience. 
the amount of times that, yes, I have seen shadow people. And yes, I've seen a lot of them. But the first few freaked me out a lot. And I had to figure out quickly how to calm myself down in the moment to be able to go, this is an encounter. What is happening? I've had shadow people walk in front of me in the middle of daytime. And I had to stop and go, holy moly, what did I just see? And yes, I wanted to run away. But what you're seeing is incredible and is not common. And just kind of take it all in. They're not going to chop your head off. It's not Hollywood. Most of these, actually all of these are mundane in that it's all visual. It's all visual. The Conjuring House can possess you, right? I mean, I'm going to say no. It has shock. It will shock you. It's like going through a haunted house attraction. It will have shocking visuals. And I will say there are times where I'll be walking through a haunted house and it's not even a haunted house where there's ghosts haunting the living. They're there, but they're not bothering anyone. Such as the house I went to in Maryland. And I have not told my friend about this. So hopefully she doesn't listen to this episode. Anyway, um, just when I walked in, I saw the previous owners standing at the head of the table. Like they're getting ready for Easter, like having Aww. Easter dinner. And I was just like, huh, It's it was shocking. I wasn't expecting it. And then a little bit later in the evening, she goes to tell me about the people who lived there and to a T because their uh, neighbors or their children live next door. Oh, wow. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that just backs up what I saw. But even talking to my friend, I feel really weird going, hey, there's people who haunt your house who used to live here in the 50s. But I I just sound, even to my friend, I, I, I think I would sound weird just going, know this, Kat feels weird telling her friends about dead people in real time. <laughs> I'm fine talking about it with you two because I, you've seen enough that you're like, okay. Yeah, I, I want you, you to tell me real time if something is around, is around. Okay, I will know to tell you. I do, not everyone I know wants me to tell them when there is somebody randomly dead walking around. <laughs> like, you, know, you, can, you can tell me as long. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And on that note, that's a good note to end on. Actually, <laughs> a good note to end on. Thank you, <laughs> both of you, Misha and um, Leanna. Leanna, thank Leandra, you. Sorry. Leandra, sorry. Thank you, Misha and Leandra, for sharing these stories and letting us know about things you heard. I am very happy that you did that. Um, please keep doing it. I encourage it. Uh, we we don't catch everything. I And Leandra <laughs> actually sent to our hometown haunts email address. Oh no, yay. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. Um also Please participate in our Facebook group, which is Hometown Haunts on Facebook. And you can also tweet and do we tweet anymore? Have we canceled that platform? You can at least poke us at Cincy Cabinet of Curiosities on Instagram. If you're still on Twitter, it's Sin Cabinet Curio. And um, please share your hometown haunts with us if you hear anything strange in our audio that we don't mention at all, any EVPs, please let us know. It we may have missed something so and also that there are ghosts that haunt our hot well they're in houses they're not in gens jen you're okay thank you Sorry, i appreciate Christina. that anyway so <laughs> on that note 
everyone sleep well tonight you know, yeah. and all that so <laughs> this is the best outro <laughs> thank you for listening everyone good night stay spooky. bye i'd like to think there's something waving behind me oh that'd be fun it's probably a cat <laughs> yeah probably probably <laughs>